Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. The jazz session is also available for free at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. This week's guest is journalist Mark Myers from the blog Jazzwax.com. Mark's going to tell us about the story of Bud Shank and his involvement in the early years of the jazz bossa nova craze. Here is Bud with guitarist Lorindo Almeida. My guest is journalist Mark Myers. He is the uh, proprietor of the excellent jazzwax.com, uh, a wonderful blog where you will find uh, extensive interviews uh, and reviews and, and quirky CD finds, and where if you are anything like me, it is dangerous to travel because uh, your wallet will always lighten as Mark suggests something that you should hear, and then you have to go buy it, which is what happens to me uh, several times a week. It's my pleasure to welcome uh, Mark to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Jason, great to be here. Well, you're here today to talk about uh, a subject that I think was probably uh, as much of a surprise to me as it sounded from the articles uh, as it was to you, which is the involvement of Bud Shank in the very early years of the bossa nova and kind of bossa nova jazz movement. And before we talk specifically about Bud, will you talk about how you were turned on to Bud's involvement uh, in the bossa nova years? Yeah, it's, it's funny. I had written I had written a post about Bossa Nova, and I pegged the start of Bossa Nova to the late 50s, at which point I got a wave of emails from the West Coast saying, hey, 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 not so fast. Um, you got to go all the way back to the early 50s and Bud Shank to, uh, to understand the origins of the Bossa Nova, at which point 
I did a bit of research, and uh, lo and behold, uh, I had completely missed the Bud Shank uh, connection uh, to the, origin, uh, the origins of the bossa nova. Interestingly, though, uh, Bud rarely, rarely spoke about this period, uh, which was puzzling to me. But when I contacted his wife and I told her, look, I you know, wanted to speak with Bud about this stuff, she said, well, you know, he doesn't really like to get into it. You know, he kind of likes to leave it to Stan Getz, and you know, he doesn't really like to you know, sort of take any credit for that. It re- really wasn't pure bossa nova anyway. I said, well, you know, that's one way to look at it. The other way is you know, that part of history is going to be completely lost unless he talks about it. So she got him to talk about it, and we had a, we had a great uh, two-hour interview. Now, it's a little bit surprising that, that Bud Shank is one of the guys involved in this movement. I mean, it's not completely uh, you know, beyond the realm that you wouldn't think to, to place him there. Um, and maybe talk a little bit about kind of who Bud is for folks who don't know and, and the things that he's most famous for. Bud Shank's born, believe it or not, in Dayton, Ohio. Um, and like you know, many young musicians in the 1940s, they went where the big bands took them. Um, you know, if you were gifted, if you were a gifted musician, you you sort of hop from band to band, and where you went was really dependent on where that band was booked. And those who wound up on the West Coast generally had joined bands that wound up out there. Um, you know, the weather was fabulous, the the work was plentiful out in California, and the population was growing rapidly. It was like this big suburbia. Uh, and Bud Shank joined Stan Kenton's band in early 1950 when. Kenton started his massive innovations in modern music orchestra, which was sort of a, an attempt at European classical jazz. Um, didn't quite work out, but it was large-scale and inventive. But in 52, Kenton cuts the band down to 19 musicians and starts this new concepts of artistry and rhythm orchestra. Um, Shank had been through both bands uh, with Kenton, had remained there, but by 1952, um, late 1952, Bud leaves. He leaves along with a lot of other musicians from Kenton's band, to start much smaller groups. But if I'm right, it was in fact Kenton who uh, brings in one of the people who ends up uh, leading Bud into the Bossa Nova movement. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, Lorindo Almeida actually comes up from Rio de Janeiro hunting for Stan Kenton. Uh, he's a classical guitarist. In a, in a musical way, we should point out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not, a, not on a vendetta of some sort. Yeah, yeah but it's not, as though Lor- it's not as though Lorindo caught a plane and sort of stumbled around town for a while and three years later, you know, auditioned for Kenton. He, his whole purpose for coming to California at that point was to uh, join Stan Kenton's band. And fortunately for Lorindo at that exact moment uh, in 1947, um, the Latin thing is really catching on in a big way in the late 1940s. You've got Dizzy Gillespie embracing um, Afro-Cuban music. You've got Machito. Uh, you've already had the Mexican influence on the West Coast big band scene with Adios, Perfidia, uh, and other famous songs from that were originated in Mexico. But Lorindo comes there and, uh, you know, he's looking for, he wants to join Kenton. Kenton needs a Latin influence in the band, hires him, and Bud Shank is in that band and he and Lorindo become very, very close friends and both end up leaving uh, the Kenton band uh, roughly at the same time in 53. So will you talk a little bit about what uh, Lorindo Almeida did when he when he left the Kenton band, and in fact, I think he was doing this while he was in the Kenton band. But he wanted to uh, he wanted to have some space as a solo guitarist and wanted to broaden the repertoire beyond the kind of classical things that a lot of guitarists played uh, in restaurants. Uh, will you talk a little bit about the the path that he chose? 
Yeah, what you see in California in, in the early 50s is you, you see a real estate problem. Um, the large dance halls just aren't getting filled up. Uh, nobody, nobody really cares about dancing much anymore. The clubs that are doing well are relatively small. In fact, they're claustrophobic to some extent. And as a result, more and more musicians who go in there have to go in there with only two or three or four musicians tops to be able to play there. And what Lorinda was finding is that he's finding that he's getting a lot of work in restaurants and he's getting a lot of work by playing um, sort of ethnic, uh, Brazilian ethnic music, folk music, uh, that sort of soft and lilting and that, you know, didn't, didn't interrupt diners. Um, but that concept, playing folk, Brazilian folk music, um, and giving it a jazz feel, also attracted Harry Babison, a bassist who also had been in Canton's band. Uh, and these guys are, are working as a duo. And eventually, Harry says, not too long after, he says, you know, we ought to add drums and a horn. This would really sound like something. And Babison had been sharing space with Roy Hart at a store that Roy owned in Los Angeles called Drum City. Uh, so he asked Roy to come on. They all had known Bud Shank, so they asked Bud to join in. And Lorenzo Almeida formed really the, the very first so-called Brazilian jazz ensemble, the Lorenzo Almeida Quartet, in late 53. And that's really, that's really where everything related to Brazilian music starts. You mentioned uh, Harry Babison and Roy Hart. They were working without a net, so to speak. I mean, they they were figuring out what their rhythmic contribution to the music was going to be, kind of as it was happening. Isn't that right? Yeah, I mean, you have to think back. I mean, you know, erase from your mind Bossa Nova, erase from your mind Stan Getz, erase Joe Beam. You know, erase everything you know about Brazilian music. Um, Basically, what you wind up with is sort of the Los Angeles version of Cuban music uh, that you've got in the East Coast. Um, and, you know, what, you, what you're hearing with Lorenzo Almeida is really, you know, it's sort of very light folk music. And what they do is they start to adapt that sound to a couple of jazz standards. Uh, Roy Hart doesn't know much from Brazilian music. In fact, he brings a conga drum, uh, which doesn't exist in Brazilian culture. It's the, it's the large... The large round drum for samba, not not the conga, which is a 
Brazilian, uh, excuse me, a Cuban instrument. Um, but sort of they're they're fooling around, they're finding their way. And Lorindo Almeida really is 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 the backbone of this group because he he had written all of these folk Brazilian folk songs that have a very soft sound, and they're able to adapt that uh, very easily to the kinds of things that they want to experiment with. Now, they did run into some issues in terms of improvisation uh, over some of the more traditional pieces that Lorindo was bringing to the group. How did they how did they work around those issues? Well, you know, what they did is, you know, Lorindo would, would sort of play this, this sultry, you know, Brazilian folk stuff. Um, uh, Roy was desperately trying to figure out how to sound Latin, um, because none of them knew anything about Brazil. They hadn't been there or hadn't heard anything. The records weren't here, so they had no clue. They just assumed it sounded kind of Latin. And, you know, really what you have is Bud, Bud is, is smart enough and sensitive enough um, that instead of sort of riding over the top of everything and just playing over the top of everything, he kind of joins Lorindo in this sort of surfy sound, and you wind up with a very, very cool Brazilian feel on these folk songs. Now, how does Pacific Jazz Records enter the mix here? Everybody seemed to own record companies, little tiny record companies out there um, in, in the early 1950s. You have the introduction of the 10-inch LP uh, in 1952, and, and anybody with a couple of bucks and, and some money to, to, to put together to, to create platters, um, they're, they're just starting little record companies and storefronts and wherever they can. And Roy Hart co-founded Pacific Jazz Records with... Um, Dick Bach. And at this point, Dick Bach, his first record uh, on Pacific Jazz is the Jerry Mulligan Quartet, but now he's hungry for as much material as he can get and turns to Roy and says, look, you know, what do you got? You know, what can you do? You know, let's, let's, let's record something. Uh, so these guys, the Lorindo Almeida Quartet, you know, they, they rehearse and they go into The Hague uh, where the Jerry Mulligan Quartet is playing. They're actually the night off Band. We should mention that's the name of a jazz club, not the International Center for Diplomacy in the Netherlands. Right? Or the General. That's or the correct. General, yes, which that's would right. be very that's uncomfortable. Right. The Hague was a very, very hot club uh, in California at the time. And uh, you've got Lorenda Almeida Quartet sort of playing there on, on the night that the Jerry Mulligan Quartet is off. And these guys are, you know, they're, they're, they've got it down, and then they go into recording studio, uh, and they record Volume 1 of Lorendo Almeida Quartet, which is sort of the first Brazilian jazz album recorded in the United States. Oh, now, what happens with this record when it comes out? Do, do people hear it? Do people know about it? Uh, what, what's the, res- the response? You know, in the United States, it's, it's sort of a novelty record. It's really not, not that well-known. You, you, know, you don't have mass distribution the way you did later in the 50s with the completion of the international, excuse me, the uh, national highway system. So, you know, this is really regional stuff uh, in California. But an interesting thing happens. Um, Air routes between uh, Los Angeles and Rio de Janeiro open up, and and there are direct flights, you know, for for whatever reason. It may have been that the weather was similar um, or that trade uh, was very strong between Southern Southern California and uh, Brazil and coffee and so, so forth. But these records work their way down to Rio de Janeiro, these uh, Lorindo Almeida Quartet albums, as well as the West Coast jazz albums that are emerging. And the guys who are buying these records down in Rio include uh, Antonio Carlos Jobim, Gilberto, Luis Bonfa, 
um, Vinicius de Moray, uh, and all the others who are sort of trying to figure out a way to make the samba less boomy and a little more cool. And what they do is they wind up adapting West Coast jazz and this Lorenzo Almeida quartet material. Uh, they adapt that to the samba, and they wind up with bossa nova. Now, during uh, the timeline that we're speaking of, and we're starting in the early 50s, and we're continuing into the 50s, Bud is continuing to make this music. And what I didn't know also until I read uh, your interviews with Bud, which of course are at jazzwax.com, and I strongly encourage folks to seek out, was that Gary Peacock was involved uh, in an early iteration of this music as well. Yeah, later on in 1958, I mean, keep in mind the Lorendo Almeida Quartet albums that I've just described, that's late 1953, early 1954. Um, by 1958, the Bossa Nova movement is really picking up speed down in Brazil, and we know that uh, because the State Department is sending jazz musicians on tours all over the world, including down to Brazil, and the jazz guys are coming back with records. I mean, they're coming back with armfuls of records, and, and they're just, they, they just can't get over what they're hearing down there. So uh, as a result, what happens is Bud Shank and Almeida are brought back into the studio um, with Gary Peacock and drummer Chuck Flores. And in 1958, they record, um, so I guess it's not quite bossa nova yet. It's still sort of folk, folk jazz, Brazilian folk jazz. And it's called Holiday in Brazil. It's 1958. And a year later, the same group records Latin Contrasts, which, again, isn't, isn't full-flamed bossa nova yet uh, but it's it's getting real close i think what's really interesting you know in, in my research and chatting with bud you know when you think about it both um, the jerry mulligan quartet which is really the birth of the pianoless quartet or you know really one of the very early uh, west coast cool groups and the bossa and brazilian jazz both come about at the hague and almost simultaneously since they're both working the same the same club different days of the week, which is sort of fascinating when you think about it.
Now, Mark, uh, you've already mentioned the fact that some of these records uh, that Lorinda Almeida and Bud Schenk were recording were making their way down to Brazil. And uh, one of my, my favorite moments in the interviews that you did with Bud was uh, a line that he had, and I'm just paraphrasing here, but people used to ask him what happened to West Coast Jazz, and he would say, well, it went to went to Rio. Um, so uh, we should also point out that at this time that you're speaking of, when these records are being recorded, Bud still hasn't actually ever been to Brazil, right? Right. Um, he's, you know, he's he has a feel for the music, and Lorendo Almeida is playing it, and he gets it. But on a trip down to Buenos Aires in Argentina, um, on his return flight back uh, in the early 60s, mid-60s, it turns out he can stop in Rio during Carnival if he wants, and he sort of can get off the plane and stay for X number of days and get back on and fly home if he wanted to. Um, so he decides to do that. And so he spends this 10 days in, in Rio, and during this these 10 days, I mean, he is just hanging out with everybody, you know, everybody who's related to the bossa nova. Um, Jobim, Banfa, Sergio Mendez, I mean, they're all down there, and uh, Bud Shank is, is hanging out down there as well. And, um, you know, this business about, okay, you know, that sounds, that sounds really, sounds, it sounds logical that, you know, West, that West Coast jazz influenced the bossa nova guys and that Bud Shank's albums with uh, Lorenzo Almeida influenced these guys, but you know, how do we really know that? And, you know, it's really telling as, you know, Bud said, finally, you know, I asked him that question. I, and he said, well, you know, Jobim told me, you know, we were at his apartment and Jobim and all the other guys were telling me that, you know, they had listened to the Lorendo Almeida album and that for the longest time they were trying to figure out how to create something new and they, they just decided to adapt cool jazz to the samba and what they came up with was the bossa nova. Now, Bud uh, continued in the 60s to record uh, Bossa albums, and in fact, he did one much later in his career that's available uh, at his own website. Uh, why do you think it is, Mark, that Bud's... Uh, you kind of hinted at this uh, in your in your introduction, but why do you think it is that Bud's influence on this music uh, has been so underappreciated over the years? Well, you know, I think, you know, when you when you look at many of the labels that, that he was on, you know, they're, they're sort of fringe labels, you know, and fringe labels, I mean, not that the albums aren't good, they're actually quite excellent, but they just didn't have the promotional muscle or the, the influence with radio stations to really get this stuff out. And, you know, in the early, late 50s, early 60s, you've got a lot of people fooling around with the Bossa Nova. You know, Dave Brubeck's got a Bossa Nova album out. Uh, you know, a number of different jazz, different jazz artists are, are have so-called bossa nova albums, but they're, they're really not going anyplace. I mean, they're they're interesting, but they're they're not going anyplace. It's not really until um, the spring of '63. Well, you know, actually, it's a little bit earlier. It's 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 jazz samba with Charlie Bird and Stan Getz that just blows this thing open, uh, and Desafinado that that is an instrumental that not only soars up the singles chart. But also the album does incredibly well, which then, of course, leads to Getz Gilberto, which is the girl from Ipanema. And then it's just completely, complete mayhem. I mean, you know, with the fall of Cuba in 59 um, and the, the you know, rise of Castro, Cuba's pretty much shut off to the United States after 1959. And um, as a result, there's very little Latin music, new Latin music coming in here, which creates an enormous opportunity for the bossa nova to fill that fill that gap and it's not it's not a surprise that the bossa nova's beat um is not that different uh than the the cha-cha uh so you know the bossa nova fills that role neatly um and it with gets gilberto and the girl from ipanema it just takes off and you know 
the albums that Bud recorded are sort of forgotten, and the, the albums he does record again in the, in the 60s with Claire Fisher aren't as well known, of course, as the Verve recordings with Getz. Um, but really what's fascinating is that Bud Shank's sound was the perfect sound for the bossa nova, and even Stan Getz knew that, because if you, you listen to those Verve recordings by Stan, um, he's playing very high up on the tenor register. It's, it almost sounds like an alto. Now, Bud said that he didn't believe his recordings, uh, Bud Shank's recordings, had influenced Stan Getz's recordings. Isn't that right? He may or may not be right. You know, it's hard to say who influences what. I mean, anybody who's anybody who's a student of Stan Getz, you know, knows that Stan did his own thing. Really, could ca- could have cared less about most people or most anything. Uh, whatever sounded great, he did it, and he did it with enormous style and enormous power. Um, but you know, Stan's influence really was Charlie Bird. You know, Charlie Bird was on one of those State Department tours, came back with about 25, 50 albums, and was just absolutely taken with this music and played them for Stan over the phone, uh, at which point Stan said, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll try recording some of that. Let's do it. And that's pretty much, you know, Stan sort of nonchalantly, accidentally backs into this. Uh, and his sound, of course, works for that neatly. But Bud's sound, you know, it's, it's, there's a different energy with Bud's. Um, you know, Stan, Stan's sound primarily is an East Coast sound, and it's, it's very, very laid back for an East Coast musician, but Stan really understood how to play uh, that bossa nova. He, he understood where you had to come in, and he understood space very well. You know, the Bud Shank recordings are they're, they're t- more tightly rendered, um, and they're cooler in a different way, but there's a different energy level to Bud Shank's recordings. I, I, in, in a funny way, the West Coast guy winds up being more intense than the East Coast guy uh, in this situation. And, and Stan, Stan's records, thanks to Verve and Creed Taylor and Phil Ramone and everybody who was involved with those early records, uh, made them huge hits. Well, it's a fascinating story. Uh, my guest is Mark Myers. He runs jazzwax.com. And uh, if you go to jazzwax, there's a, a list of the interviews on the right-hand side. The guests, there's also a search box where you can just type in Bud Shank, and you'll find his three-part interview with Bud. And at the bottom of each interview, uh, Mark also suggests a recording, some of which are available for download, and some of which are available for purchase, and some of which are available if you find the right Seller or old record basement in which you can uncover some of these records, uh, but Mark, it's uh, it's such a fascinating story, and I'm very very glad that you came uh, on the show to share it. Thanks so much for being here, Jason. Thanks a lot. It was a pleasure.
my thanks to Mark Myers from jazzwax.com for coming on the show and shedding some light on Bud's early years in the bossa nova scene. You've been listening to The Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by allaboutjazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of The Jazz Session is also available for free at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. The Jazz Session has an email mailing list, which is a great way to win free music. You can sign up at thejazzsession.com. If you're on Facebook, there's a group for The Jazz Session there, and I use that also to give away music. The theme music for this show is by the Respect Sextet online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed the Jazz Sessions logo. The Jazz Session is distributed under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives, 3.0 United States license. You can find out more about that at thejazzsession.com. Thanks very much for listening. Please support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening. Bye.